Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project. Apologies if I sound a little bit husky this morning. Uh, I'm a little bit sick right now, but I'm going to record this two-minute intro anyway and then give my voice a little bit of a rest. This episode is a recording with my very good friend Krista Valentino, founder and director of Coalition Wild. In this conversation, we cover learning the tactics of patience and listening, how to build a global network of peers who can support you, both for personal benefit and in order to build an organisation that aims to create environmental change. We also talk about some of the failures that Krista feels have helped set her up for future success, and she shares an incredible story about a young man who travelled on his own from India to Spain, leaving his country for the first time ever, uh, wandering around a city in Spain, asking people where Krista was, and then uh, has now become a key figure in tackling the illegal wildlife trade and inspiring other young people around the world. So keep listening for that amazing story a bit later on. We also discuss the right questions to ask before setting out on a new project, and why we don't necessarily need more environmentalists or scientists in order to save the world. Coalition Wild is a global initiative working to connect and equip the world's young changemakers to create a wilder world. Krista's professional focus is on developing ways to accelerate projects that support a better future for the planet and integrate a new generation of voices into the environmental movement. You can find out more at coalitionwild.org or at coalitionwild on Twitter. And you can apply to become one of Coalition Wild's 2018 Global Ambassadors by visiting coalitionwild.org forward slash ambassador. That's A-M-B-A-S-S-A-D-O-R. And the deadline is the 28th of February 2018. You can contact Krista at Krista at coalitionwild.org. That's C-R-I-S-T-A at C-O-A-L-I-T-I-O-N-W-I-L-D dot org. And in Krista's own words, there are so many ways to get involved, and they never turn anyone away. Now, let's dive in. So, how do you go about building nature, wildlife, the outdoors into your day or your week? And what's been one of the most kind of memorable outdoors or wildlife moments from the past few days? Ooh, that's, I think, uh, I think I am uniquely fortunate. Um, I live in an, in an amazing, in an amazing place in the world around people who share, um, share the same love of an active lifestyle. So, so working in wildlife and outdoors is is something that it's like a day to day. It's part of the routine. Um, so it, it's like when we get off our chat here, I'm going to go for a long run, um, because it's just part of what you do. Mm-hmm. Yesterday I went out into Grand Teton National Park and spent, um, four hours with one of my closest friends, um, skiing and, and touring and it, it's all self-propelled and it, I, I, I think it's what has always drawn me or continues to draw me here to Jackson and wanting to make this place where I live for the rest of my life because 
it, I, I feel like it would be really difficult to have a passion for the outdoors and for wildlife and for open places and for clean air and all of these things that I, I really care about and that are a value to me um, without having people around me that also value that and, and who desire to spend their Sunday you, like walking uphill and trying really hard to gain a little bit of elevation so that you could ski down by, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, and, and not only for the athletic aspect, but the amount of times that her and I just stopped and looked around and made comments about how beautiful of a day it was and how lucky we were to live in a place like this. And, and, and to make sure that that, um, that this place isn't lost on us, you know, that you never get jaded. And so, so I think, I think I have an easier access to it than most people in the world. And, and it isn't lost on me that I do. And could you just say where it is that you're based and what it's like? I think I've Googled it and yeah. looked at Google Images before, <laughs> but I've never been there, obviously. Yeah, so live in Jackson, Wyoming, which is in the United States. And it's, in, it's considered the West, uh, West uh, well, it's not the West Coast. So the United States is flanked by the East and West Coasts. Then you have the Midwest, which is like, um, Iowa and Missouri and Illinois and all the states over there. And then the West is like Colorado and Wyoming, Montana, um, Utah. And so I live in the West and right on the border of Wyoming and Idaho, there's this beautiful striking mountain range called the Tetons. Um, and we have two national parks. We have Yellowstone National Park, which I think a lot of people have heard of before. And that's about 60 miles. So it's about um, 100-ish kilometers uh, north. And then right outside our back door is Grand Teton National Park. And, and so we have, kind of, we're surrounded. So Jackson is also known as Jackson Hole, and Jackson Hole is the valley, and the reason they call it Jackson Hole is because you're literally in this valley between these incredible mountain ranges. And so you have the Grovant Mountain Range to your east, you have the Tetons that run north to south on the west, um, to the north are the Absarokas, to the south is the Snake River Range, and so you're just in this valley um, surrounded by these, these huge peaks. Um, and, and incredible wildlife, you know, I could, I was driving back from the airport the other day and passed six moose, um, and we have bison roaming everywhere. I could go on runs and sometimes you, you may run into a bear. Hopefully you don't, but it, there's very real possibility. We have wolves running around mountain lion, lynx, bobcat. Um, and then of course, elk and deer, um, kind of everything you could think of. And then an incredible, and I know you're a birder, so um, an yeah. incredible birding uh, population. Lots of gold, bald eagles, lots of golden eagles, lots of raptors. So this place is pretty pretty diverse and pretty incredible. Yeah. We're kind of like the, like the ecosystem mecca out here. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty amazing. The only bit of the US I've really spent much time in is the southeast, so North Carolina mm -hmm. and... Um... And Virginia, which has some pretty good bird life, but I've never really done anything out west where I would see, you know, things like elk or moose or bears or, yeah, so it's definitely something I want to do at some point. I've got some family out in Iowa and I've got a friend who grew up in Washington State, so, um, mm -hmm. so yeah, I want to try and take advantage of that at some point.
yeah, you absolutely should. There's, you know, I always think of it because people, when people are saying, yeah, I want to come visit the States, they always consider going to see New York City or Los Angeles or San Francisco or Las Vegas, you know, in some of my, probably my favorite place in the United States is the Western area, all the way from up in Yellowstone and Montana, um, all the way down to Nevada. And, and it, it's so diverse. Um, we have these national parks like Arches National Park and Zion and Bryce Canyon and Joshua Tree all down in like the Nevada, southern Utah area, which have formations and a landscape like nowhere else in the world. Um, and then as you go further north, you know, you, you start um, being exposed to these really um, unique charismatic meg charismatic megafauna like the bears and the elk and the grizzly and wolves and everything like that um and these big mountain ranges it's 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 a really incredible um road trip route if if you have 10 days or two weeks to to um see a, a side of the united states i don't think many people think of so was wyoming where you grew up yeah as well no i grew up on long island um, and then went to school, uh, to university in Connecticut. And so I just moved out here, um, nine winters ago. So about eight and a half years ago. Right. Okay. So I wanted to ask next, what role nature or wildlife played for you growing up, if at all, or if it was later on in life that you kind of fell in love with nature in the outdoors? Yeah, I, I wish I, you know, I get that question sometimes I get that question fairly often, um, and I wish I had a better, better story um, for people when it comes to it because I don't, I don't feel like I had a really unique or profound childhood in that sense. I think I grew up like a lot of people, um, middle class families in the United States, where, um, you know, after school you went outside and played with your friends and and played sports or pick up games of soccer with your friends, and in the summer. Um, spent it at the beach or um, like my family's version of camping was going on a, our our boat, the four of us. And it was like a, a little boat that you could barely fit four of us in and going from port to port for 10 days. And that was our version of camping. Um, but we always had all different pets. Like I have, I've had um, frogs and iguanas and birds and, and we used to rescue birds that used to fly into the window and nurse them back to health, you know, like mm. we used to do all that stuff. And, but I don't think that that's any different or necessarily had, a, like they changed my view um, in any way. It was just something I was, I guess, always interested in, but I never knew that you could have a profession or a job or work to help protect that I mean that all being said I guess if you ask my mom she would have a different answer because when I was a kid for some reason I was obsessed with wolves I don't even remember why I learned about wolves or how that first came to be but I was obsessed with them like had them plastered all over my bedroom you know some people had like the Backstreet Boys and I had wolves <laughs> <laughs> and um and for I think it was my sixth or seventh birthday my mom um I was so obsessed with them that my mom or my parents my mom and dad um adopted me a wolf one of the reintroduced reintroduced wolves from Yellowstone um its name was Maxie 
And that was like my, one of my birthday gifts. And I still have that adoption paper with Matsy's face on it. And I told my mom that when I grew up, I wanted to move to Montana and save the wolves. Like how I knew that wolves were threatened. I have no idea. I, I like, it's beyond me. I think I was just, you know, on a crusade to make a difference in the world or feel like I mattered. <laughs> um, but once I moved out to Jackson and uh, got my first job working at a nonprofit um, doing environmental work, my mom sent me an email with the Matsy uh, adoption papers attached and with a, just like a sentence saying, you always knew you would be out there saving the wolves. And so according to my mom, it was being out here was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> better, a pretty, that's a pretty good story. I quite like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like you had quite an outdoorsy childhood, just in a kind of, you know, boating and camping and holidays kind of way. But then there's a, you know, then there's clearly some sort of passion around wolves. Was that, so you say you didn't really realize you could have a profession in the environment or in conservation. Was there a moment when, there was a possibility that you could have gone down a very different route. And I'm sort of posing back at you here a question <laughs> that you suggested to me for interviewing someone else on this podcast a few months ago. So I'm flipping it around and turning it on you here. <laughs> um, I, this is one of my favorite questions. And, and yeah, so I'd say it wasn't until I was 22 and after and after I moved to Jackson that I realized that working in conservation or the environmental sector or any of that was, was even an option. Um, so that was after I changed my major in college seven times. That was after I went through a few jobs already um, that I got an opportunity that seemed like it finally fit, right? That, that I was like, oh, I like this and I care about it and I'm good at it. <laughs> um, but I think if, if I weren't, quote unquote, where I am now, you know, if there was that, that turning point, um, I think it was probably right after I graduated university and I was making the decision to move. I, I first moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, before moving to Jackson um, and to make that decision to move to Salt Lake City. And my other option would have been to either move to Boston or New York City and get a job in marketing or public relations and work in a big um, high-rise skyscraper and wear, wear skirt suits every day and, and, and live that <laughs> life. And I think I would have I done it just fine. Um, but to be honest, after getting, like, seeing the other side of it and feeling how easily this fits and how much it makes sense to me and, and how um, simply I care about it, you know, like it's not a thought, it's, it's so much of this work is aligns easily with my values um, and, and the things I'm passionate about, that other, that other Krista seems absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> wearing like I mean don't get me wrong I still have a pair of stilettos and patent leather leggings like packed away just in case I have to ever move back to fall back on <laughs> yeah for sure that's like the plan b you know yeah but I've re I've read um I've been reading some of the stuff that you've written over the past I've been reading over the past few days some of the stuff that you've written over the past few years and there's one piece where you you write about, I've, I've been trying in asking you these questions not to use the word career because you write about um, 
I'm not going to hit the nail on the head quite here, but about making young people think that it's all about pursuing a successful career as being the wrong approach and that being the wrong question in a sense. Rather, we should be, as you've just said, asking young people who are entering the the job market about what is it that they care about and how do they want to make a difference in the world. Is that is that a fair representation, representation of what you think? Yeah, I, I actually think you do. You did hit the nail on the head. Um, what I've been noticing, and, and for me, it's a constant learning experience. And so none of this is <laughs> necessarily based on um, hard data or research, but just from a lot of um, experiential understanding over the last couple of years and, and noticing that we often, and, and I guess I could speak mostly to the United States' position, but I think it also goes beyond that. Um, but we, we go into the school system, this education system that kind of puts you on a track of, of learning and, and continue. And oh, we, we always ask this question, especially of like second, third, fourth graders of what do you want to be when you grow up? Who's your hero? Um, and people, we, we prime these young kids to think that everything that they're going towards, every piece of their education, every, um, every test that they take, the major that they have to choose in college, um, all of those things are leading towards a career. And, and I think that it also gives this um, preconceived notion that when you have that career, that that career is going to give you fulfillment and enjoyment, and it's going to... <clears throat> Um, uh, give you a sense of purpose. And what I've been noticing between my friends I've been talking to, um, things I've been reading, especially around millennials, is that that there is an overwhelming lack of fulfillment when people are in a job, when you assume that along with a paycheck should come purpose. Um, and for me, I, I definitely felt that as soon as I went into the workforce. And, and the moment that I stopped feeling that, that I started recognizing that fulfillment um, was separate, was the moment I started acting on things I was passionate about and getting involved in causes that meant things to me. And, um, and I'm one of the lucky people that have a career that is a passion. Um, and, and so I fully recognize that. But I think, I think there's a lot of young people out there searching for their identities and are feeling a little uh, lost because they thought that a career or a job would, um, would provide that identity. And rather, I think an identity is the things that, that fills your soul and the things that you value. And... Um, how you care or make a priority the the things that are important to you. And I feel as though our education system in general, but also as parents, as friends, as um, aunts or uncles or um, individuals even, maybe we should stop asking the question, what what is it that you do? Or, or who is it, what do you want to be when you grow up? And rather ask the questions, what do you care about? What is it that you want to make a difference in? Um, what are your passions? You know, the things that get to people's souls versus versus just the outer shell. Mm -hmm. And that the school system should be 
ideally creating space for young people, for pupils, for students to be exploring that as well, right? Absolutely, definitely. And and I think that that's a definitely a big burden to put on school systems because what's at play there, again, at least in the United States, is so much larger than just going to a teacher and, and saying, you need to allow your students to be more creative, right? It doesn't necessarily work that way. Mm. But <clears throat> I think that there's a lot of opportunity outside the school system um, for for young people to explore that on their own if they knew that those options were out there or if somebody helped them to discover that or at least gave them sort of um, a hand to hold to to ask the questions or to try something new or to put their time into something they care about versus something they should, quote unquote, should or should not be doing. Yeah. So what was, so what, what was one of the first opportunities that came your way that kind of helped you to realize this difference between pursuing a career and pursuing things that you really cared about and that you were good at? Yeah. Um, I, for me, um, this is, this is another kind of, fun story of my first real, uh, career job, I guess that got me, that was the first step into getting me where I am. Um, so I moved to Jackson and, um, got a job as a front desk agent at a, at a lodge at our ski resort. Um, and excuse me, working there at the time, um, was this guy named John. He was or he was working as a bellman part-time, but he was also working full-time at this nonprofit conservation organization. And John and I, the first, my first day of work, he was working, he was tasked to kind of show me around the hotel and give, show me the ropes. And we, we hit it off immediately and, and became fast friends. And he, um, he was telling me about the work he was doing at this, at this organization and the way he tells the story. And I don't actually for sure remember this, but he's told me this story enough times that um, I, I feel comfortable relaying it. But um, we were, he says that we were standing at the front desk and, and I said, um, I told him how I wasn't necessarily happy. Like, this is what I wanted to do that working at a front desk isn't, wasn't like what I wanted to have as my future. And he said to me, he asked me, well, what is it that you want to do? And he said that I looked at him and I said, I don't know, but I just want to make a difference. I just want to do something that matters. And um, uh, probably about four or five months later, a position opened at the organization he worked at. And we ended up serendipitously running into each other um, and over the weekend. And I jokingly was like, John, when are you going to get me a job with you? And he goes, funny you should say that. Want to come in Monday? <laughs> and and kind of like that and that was and I had no idea what I was stepping into or what I was doing or even really what the organization did to be quite honest um but from that moment it was it was the first time that I was put in a position of somebody taking me under their wing and saying like you have very little skills but you have the skill that matters which is a, a desire to make a difference and and I could work with that um, and, and over the next four and a half years, John basically, um, molded me into much of the person I am today and, and was able to give me, um, so many skills, not only in like a work situation, but in, in life, in, in connecting me and networking me to the right people in, in town, in, um, 
putting me in opportunities that challenged me yet helped me to grow and learn, you know, like he, and that was really that first time that I not only fell in love with, I, with what I was doing because the work we were doing made a difference in the community, made a difference in individuals' lives, made a difference um, in species and land. But also what it really did was it, it made a difference in, in my life as well and me as a person and made me a person that was able to now contribute even more to these things that I cared about. Have you got any examples of the kind of um, the kind of skills that he helped mm. you to develop over that time? Oh yeah, <laughs> I think the biggest one, and if if he heard me say this, he'd probably laugh really hard. Um, is well, I so I grew up in New York, and not only had a very thick New York accent, but was very much rough around the edges, and and <laughs> didn't necessarily have the best interpersonal skills or or yeah, in office skills or um, patience or understanding and all of those things that come with critical thinking and, and recognizing that you aren't the center of the world and your opinion isn't always the right one, right? That there are a lot of other people out there and sometimes, oftentimes, most of the time, keeping your mouth shut and listening and asking questions is the greatest way to learn and the greatest thing you could do for yourself is to learn. Um, to learn about things. And so he he was so patient and kind in uh, sort of polishing those rough edges and making me, I think, a, a better listener and a better um, better at understanding people who had different viewpoints and taught me how to ask the right questions or to how, how to um, be patient and, and handle really difficult situations. Um, like all of those kind of internal skills are, are difficult to, to give one example about and maybe aren't necessarily tangible, but that you use in everyday life, in when, especially when things get tough and you often want to fall back into habit or reactionary or defensiveness. And how to instead be open and vulnerable and um, and be okay with changing your mind or having an unpopular opinion, you know? Mm. And those are, those are skills that are definitely not useful only in the environmental sector, but useful, I guess, in almost any sector. But if you want to make positive change in the world, then they're, they're essential if you want to be really effective. And that the, the list the list of the list of things you've just mentioned there kind of surprises me, or I don't know, yeah, I guess surprises me a little bit because you're one of the most kind of personable, good at interpersonal skills, good at asking questions, <laughs> good at listening people who I who I know in the environmental sector. <laughs> well, I really appreciate that, and I'm really glad that you didn't know me nine years ago. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny though, I will say that there's, um, I, <laughs> I think old habits die hard and there are definitely times where I find myself reacting in a way I would have when I was in my teens, uh, to situations that, that don't deserve that or to people that don't deserve that. And 
the thing that sometimes keeps me up at night is is that is is realizing that um every human on this planet is doing the best that they can and they have a a life and a reality and a truth that they understand and um everyone has reasons and motivations for doing things <clears throat> and if we don't try to empathize with that and put ourselves in other people's shoes and truly understand where they're coming from without our own preconceptions or notions or opinions, um, then you can't ever really change anything because, because you're only looking at it from your viewpoint. Right. And sometimes things that you think, like I, especially in the Western world, we often think because of our advances of technology or our wealth or our this or our education system or whatever, um, our way is better. But, but there's so many times that I've noticed that it's not, and, and we don't know everything. And a community that is living in mud huts um, the way they have for hundreds of years are sometimes happier than people who have everything who are living in, in penthouses, you know? And, and the greatest thing that I think any of us can do is, is just try to understand other humans. And I promise you that I never, I didn't even consider that nine years ago. <laughs> well, that's a pretty remarkable journey to have been on. That's kind of amazing. Are there any, um, going sl down a slightly different route here, but we'll come back to some of the stuff you just said, I'm sure. But um, are there any like routines or practices that you have day to day that help you to maintain that clarity and that like controlling the reactiveness that's part of so many of us so for example <laughs> like meditation or journaling or maybe it's just the time that you spend outdoors maybe that really helps yeah I think I do um I do try to do a bit of meditation and I'm not the best at it so I can't call myself an active participant in meditating, but I, I spend a lot of time, um, I think doing my own, being in my own head and working through issues or analyzing problems that I'm having, um, when I'm on runs or hikes or skis or whatever activity I'm doing, it's sort of my, my space where, my brain is working in the background, yet I'm also focused on other pieces and so, um, or other challenges that are happening. And so for me, just being active allows me to work through a lot. Um, but what I will say, more tangibly speaking, one of the greatest things I've ever learned also is to never hit send right away. <laughs> like put it in the draft email box, walk away, have some tea, walk outside, do something else, and don't hit send right away. Whether it's a text message, whether it's an email, <laughs> whatever it is, don't call the person back right away. Give yourself time to, to work through it, you know, to have your, um, be angry with yourself or frustrated, and then taking that breath and saying, okay, where are they coming from? Like, let me try to understand them um, so that I can have a productive conversation. So, so I guess the, the, the routine that I have is to never respond immediately. <laughs> Which is harder in spoken conversation as well, but is applies there as well, right? <laughs> we 
you could you could probably talk to my boyfriend about that when I stare at him and then I walk <laughs> away. He's like, "What what are you doing?" And I'm like, "I'm not responding right away." <laughs> and then I usually come back and say, "You were right." And he's like, "Oh, okay, good." <laughs> Which has also been an active process of learning. <laughs> Um, so I want to work around to another question about routines and practices, but to get there, um, I need to first ask you to just say a little bit about what Coalition Wild is, which you're the founder director of, and what what it does, kind of in your, which I'm sure you have very well refined by now in your kind of <laughs> elevator pitch style. I do, and I'll I I'll tell you that I hate giving elevator pitches and I know, I hate I'm sorry just... I just asked for it <laughs> no 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 so I'm um what I try to do is actually say it differently every time and that almost works against you because you don't drive your mission and vision and um all of that home but it just for me it just sounds so fabricated when you're just like coalition wild uh connects galvanizes and equips young leaders to tackle our world's greatest conservation challenges oh there you go you've just done it that's great okay there you go yeah. <laughs> no no in your in your own words it would be really great yeah. to hear it sure so so i think we all have felt the way um that when you're trying something new or, or are considering trying something new um you feel kind of isolated and unsure of yourself maybe lacking confidence um and and I feel really alone. Um, and what Coalition Wild does is tries to mitigate those feelings and having those feelings be a reason for failure by connecting young people who are making strides towards a better future for the planet, connecting them to each other, using those stories as inspiration and providing resources to get more young people to get involved in making change in their communities. And so um, saying that you on the ground, you as a 20-something, 30-something, passionate young person, understand your community best. And you also understand the challenges that your community faces the best. So by way, you know the solutions that will actually work and that are necessary to tackle those challenges. How do we give you all the resources, the tools, the support, the network, um, the platform to share and amplify your voice to ensure that you can be the person that enacts change and that, that you can be the example and that you can prove that one person can make a difference and that, um, that more often than not, it's the most important person that makes a difference as well. And could you illustrate a little bit in maybe numbers, kind of what, what Coalition Wild has achieved around the world? Yeah, so we have a network of almost 10,000 people um, that are situated around the world um, in, I, I think it's about 52 countries. Um, within those members, we have a, a base of 10 steering committee members from eight countries. Um, we have 42 different project leaders who have either started or are a part of on-the-ground projects that they have initiated um, that are successful. We have we have just launched our um, application process for 2018 ambassadors, but in the past we had we have a total of I think it was 17 total ambassadors over the last handful of years, um, and 
Uh, we also run a mentorship program that has currently 13 pairs. So 26 people, but um, paired up 13 pairs. Mm -hmm. And those are all, again, all over the world. And in, in terms of, so you've got this huge spread of kind of young people doing amazing things, connecting with each other across the world. But in terms of the running of the organization day to day, there's, there's not that many of you, right? There's, there's you and... There's me. There's you. <laughs> there's me. Um, yeah, there's basically me. Um, we sometimes have interns. Uh, last year, we've, I'd say in Coalition Wild's um, entire four years, we've had, ooh, off the top of my head, I think seven interns. Um, and right now, we have, uh, I have one intern supporting our ambassador program, and we have a Vacation open um, for, or sorry, excuse me, it just closed, but we're going to be having two more interns join our team. But um, everybody, all of the internships and people that work with us are volunteering their time, which um, goes to show how um, how much there is for a desire, or how much desire there is from young people to contribute to something that is they that is bigger than themselves and that they want to be a part of. Yeah. So, so given that it is just you, um, obviously supported by interns and obviously with this amazing network around the world, but I wanted to come back a little bit to this question of routines and practices. So what, what are some of the ways, whether it's, you know, things that you do when you first get up in the morning or whether it's, you know, again, whether it goes back to this thing of spending lots of time outdoors and taking time to think things through, what are the things that keep you motivated and focused when you're having to drive forward so much of the work yourself. And I know for me, for example, I really value periods when I can buckle down and focus on a piece of work on my own. But if I try and do that all the time without kind of interacting with other people <laughs> and bouncing ideas around, then I'll, I'll fail to get things done because that's also really important to me. Yeah, for sure. And it's, and I will say it's not always easy. Um, and I don't have the best routine, which I think sometimes hinders me. Because um, there are nights or weekends that I'll work, but then there's also days that I get to go ski all day, you know. Um, so it, it's kind of a give and take there. But I, I will say, I think for me, I I get burned out as as much as I think anybody else does, especially when you work alone. And there's definitely days that, as I kind of alluded to when we first started chatting, um, where I feel like I'm crazy or I've been talking to myself so long that, that my visions and ideas sound, might sound outlandish or I'm a little uh, nervous to say them out loud because I don't know. Um, I haven't been having that conversation with other people and basically you're just having an internal dialogue and you aren't quite sure if you're being... Uh, completely missing the mark or not, you know? Um, but I think, I think that's maybe what drives me the most is that I do have, so I have been lucky enough to build a network around me with, with people like you, Matt, but also young, young people from around the world who I've met, whether it's at conferences or we've worked together on different projects. Um, and, and we text and we chat fairly often, just as you would a friend that lived down the block. And I find that when I, when I do 
feel like I'm going a bit crazy or I'm feeling lost or burnt out um, or, or maybe um, I'm lacking confidence in my skills and I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, that I, I have the ability to reach out to and to ask for their support or their guidance or advice um, or sometimes even uh, throw it out there and say, I need you to tell me that I can do this. Right. Like I need someone to believe in me because I'm not quite sure I believe in myself right now. And and they always come through in the moment. And what's kind of fun is because everybody is around the world. They come through at all different times of the night. <laughs> so it's sort of this, this barrage of response sometimes uh, at 2 a.m. And that's a, a nice message from a friend over in in Tasmania. <laughs> and um, it, it it propels me to go on. Right. It gives me that motivation and and ignites sort of that that spark of why am I doing this again and all that leads back to that's basically what Coalition Wild is working to do it's it's working to create that network that helps to empower and encourage people to say that you aren't alone that you have a net of a safety net of people around you that are cheer cheering for you and want you to succeed um and there are times where I reach out to my network and I'm like I need to create a new fundraising strategy. Does anyone have anything? I don't even know what that's, that is, right? And I get response back, yeah, here, use mine as a template. And so when I think of Coalition Wild, I'm like, okay, how do we provide those things for people who are going through exactly what I'm going through, yet I may have personally the ability, um, like I have the network to support me. Now, how do I create this network to support everybody else? And so, so much of what Cole Schwab's doing is, is also based off of my day-to-day life. Yeah. And I think you've, I think you've sort of answered one of my next questions for me, which is around, uh, you know, whilst there must be tough bits around what are some of the best bits of being involved in Coalition Wild, um, Rather, rather than asking you for kind of the whole history of the organization, which would obviously take up way more time than we have, I suppose I wanted to ask... Um, I'll, I'll answer that. A lot of Googling. <laughs> A lot of how-to Googling. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to... Yeah, you're guessing what my next question is, which is like, how, you know, despite your experience that you'd already had in the sector, how did you go about, you know, and I... I I understand that you had support from the Wild Foundation in the US, but how did you go about setting up an organization? And presumably skills like fundraising must have been things that maybe you had to, or maybe you'd had experience in that before, but there must have been skills that you had to learn from scratch. And kind of, again, while you had a network of people around you, kind of also teach yourself, right? For, absolutely. And it's so much trial and error and so much um, I don't know if you guys have this phrase, but we call it throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing yeah. what sticks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and messing up and failing. Like I've, there's, if you, if you looked at Coalition Wild history, um, there were a lot of things that we have tried that, that just didn't stick. Have you, have that, you got a particular one that like taught you an important lesson that sticks in your memory? Yeah, we, I have a couple. So we, um, when Coalition Wild first started, we wanted to create a mentorship program. And this was like in our first couple months of inception. And we d- developed all these documents and even like created an online application. And in the process realized that one, we didn't have the network of people to apply. Um, two, we had no idea what we were doing. Three, we didn't, um, 
have sort of the credibility or backing to to deliver something of quality. And so, and for, it just like wasn't working. Like there's, I I don't know if you've ever felt this, but there's times where you try things and it's just, it's like pounding a square peg into a round hole. And you're like, this is, it's too hard. Like something's not working here. Um, So we tabled it and, and, um, and, and stopped doing it and uh, stopped working towards it, I should say. And then lo and behold, a year and a half ago, I got a call from the United States Department of Interior because they wanted to, the former Secretary of the Interior, Sally Jewell, um, wanted to create a mentorship program for young environmental leaders and wanted to port, partner with a organization um, to carry it out. And I was like, oh, I have everything ready to develop that. Like, I have all the documents. Let me tweak them a little bit. <laughs> and, it, and it worked. And it worked really simple. Like it, like, it was round peg and round hole. You know, it, it worked. Um, but that was an example of, we tried it and the way we were doing it just was not working. And so that was, that was one of those main lessons I learned of like, it's okay if your vision or what your goal was, if you try and it doesn't work and it doesn't mean that you're a failure. It doesn't mean that it wasn't a worthy cause or what you're doing isn't important. Sometimes you just have to push pause and sometimes it comes down to timing, um, and be okay with saying, I'm going to put this to the side right now and focus my energy somewhere else. And, and maybe I'll revisit it. Maybe I won't, but, but pushing something just because like you, you committed to a vision, um, doesn't, doesn't make it successful. No, you're absolutely right. This very podcast took a year for me from chatting to a friend about it and having the idea for something that was maybe a, book or maybe a photo exhibition then took another 12 months to materialize into into the idea for the podcast and to begin with like when the first time around I was trying to figure it out and it just wasn't working and I wasn't finding the time for it and the format wasn't right and yeah sometimes stuff doesn't you're, you're absolutely right sometimes stuff doesn't work but you press pause and you come back to it later and it it just fits in a different way or at a different time exactly and and sometimes it reconfigures itself or you get to, in the process of pushing pause, you get to learn about other pieces that actually make that idea more viable or more successful or, um, or you're more competent in doing it, right? Like if I tried to carry out a mentorship program four years ago, five years ago, I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the understanding. I didn't have the institutional knowledge um, to, to do it well. And through those four years, the insight that I learned, the mentorship that I received from people, um, the programs that I was a part of helped to really inform um, how we design this program going forward, you know? And so, so sometimes, even though it may be a great idea, I think like, like your experience, right? You've probably, you probably learned within that year, year and a half time so much that now actually makes this podcast successful that even if you would have pushed forward a year and a half ago, it maybe would have happened, but not to the quality as it could now. Yeah, well, there's still definitely plenty to learn, but I think that it's, um, it definitely worked out better by waiting a bit and thinking about it some more than, than by going ahead at the very beginning. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes we get impatient, right? That we're like, yeah. I have this idea and I want to carry it out. It's a good idea. Let's go. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes, again, don't push send. 
right? Like take it, push pause, put it in the draft email box, walk away, take a breath. <laughs> sometimes that breath is for a year and a half. Sometimes it's for four years. <laughs> I always have to go back and listen to the podcasts that I record again to try and pick out something that's going to be like the title of the episode. I think maybe don't push send is the, is the title of this episode. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Don't push send. Tips, tips and tactics in patience. Something like that. Um, so I want to ask about um, whether it's the mentorship program or the ambassadors or maybe particularly the young people around the world that Coalition Wild is supporting to run projects in their own communities. Without taking anything away from any of those young people, is there a particularly inspiring uh young person who kind of who you could tell us a story about give us just as an example yeah um <clears throat> definitely um one of my favorite stories sort of is a full cir circle story for me um and i'll try to keep this as, as short and concise as possible um when Coalition Wild first started, we launched at the 10th World Wilderness Congress, which um, took place at uh, in Salamanca, Spain. And we ran this challenge in the lead up to the conference called the Wilder World Challenge. And um, we were gonna choose two winners. The winners would be flown over to Spain to present their work and, and um, be highlighted in front of this global conference of thousands. Um, one of the winners was this young man, Raul, who at the time I believe was 20 years old. Um, he's from India and he had a passion for um, elite or, or basically stopping illegal wildlife trafficking, especially in India. Um, and so really long story short, we had a ticket bought for him to come over to Spain, but he, uh, his visa didn't get approved. And so what ended up happening is he went into Mumbai and on his 21st birthday, spent the night sleeping on the embassy steps so that when they opened the next morning, um, he could walk up there and say, you need to approve my visa and get on a plane, which he did. Now, mind you, I didn't have any service in Spain and I, under my assumption, he wasn't able to come. Um, well, he got his visa, got a ride to the airport, bought himself a new ticket, flew to Salamanca, Spain, um, or excuse me, Madrid. And, and this is all unbeknownst to me. Raul has never been out of India, has never been to another country before. Wow. While on the plane on the way to Madrid, he made friends with the people next to him who gave him a lift to the train station, figured out how to get from Madrid to Salamanca, got off the train in Salamanca and walked around Salamanca asking them where this conference was. Once he got to the conference, started asking where Krista Valentino was, finally found me. And this was like all on his own. I, and I literally didn't know it was happening until somebody texted me like through Wi-Fi saying, this guy Raul is here and looking for you. <laughs> so it was it's the most amazing Raul's the most amazing guy so that's like to preface this of who this guy is who this who this person is um through being being at wild 10 Raul was um kind of his career kind of catapulted and he was brought to the forefront of places like sanctuary asia um and had really has gotten um has, has dived into this world of anti-trafficking 
um, <clears throat> and now does work to uh, basically bust trafficking, uh, illegal trafficking in India. And so he, his, his career's taken off. He's won a lot of awards. He, he has an um, incredibly high-risk, uh, high high-reward career that he's really passionate about. This is like his dream, right? Well, I about, I guess it was a year, a year and a half ago, I got this email from a teacher in South Dakota, United States, who teaches fourth grade. And she had a fourth grader named Abby, um, who had said to her that she didn't, that Abby didn't see the point in doing anything for the planet because all the species are going to die and we're all going to die anyway. And the planet is, is dying. So what's the point? Um, and didn't want to get involved in a project researching endangered species or something like that. So, so Abby's teacher tech or emailed me saying, how can I get this fourth grader? Like, I see what you're doing. I want to inspire this fourth grader. How can I get her to learn that there's a reason, like we should all care like that. That's important that she cares. Well, um, Abby was really interested in the slow loris, which if nobody knows what that is, which I wouldn't blame you because I didn't. The slow loris is this nocturnal animal that looks like a cross between a raccoon and a bear and a sloth. Um, put those all together. It's a really cute animal. I would, I would suggest Googling it. Um, but the slow loris are one of the top illegally trafficked animals in the world. Well, so I connected, I emailed Raul and asked him if he would talk to Abby. Um, Raul and Abby have become friends to the point where monthly they create videos, like per, like selfie videos that updates each other on what they're doing and essentially encourages each other to keep going. Raul sends Abby videos. I've seen them that say, Abby, um, what you're doing is making a difference. Thank you so much for caring about this work. Keep trying. Da, 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 da. Abby sends Raul updates that say, hey, Raul, I started a campaign at my school and have been I've raised $122 in quarters by going around and asking kids to donate their change from their lunch money. Um, and like, thank you for inspiring me. Things like that, you know, like really inspirational messages that this guy in India and this young student in South Dakota, United States, now all of a sudden have this connection that continue to inspire and encourage each other and make each other feel as though what I'm doing matters and what I'm doing makes a difference to somebody who I may never meet in an area I may never go to. Um, and it's stories like that that I find so incredibly important and, and at the basis and foundation of everything we do. Wow. Boom. <laughs> if, I'm ever, if I'm ever feeling if I'm ever feeling a lack of hope about working on conservation issues, then I'm going to come back and listen to that bit of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there, and uh, we have a couple of those, so I'm happy yeah. to share more of them with you whenever you'd like. I mean, you're a great example of it too, Matt. You know, like I don't remember how you and I even first got connected, but I know that every single time that you and I have the opportunity to even chat for an hour. I walk away feeling re-inspired and reinvigorated to continue going. Um, and I know that you've, you've said the same and, and it's, it's all about that. Like we're humans, we're, we're social species and being able to get outside our little bubbles and our little perspective of what we know from day to day, I think makes our lives worth living. 
Mm. And I would say that, you know, I've been lucky enough to work in the youth environmental sector for the best part of a decade, maybe even slightly more than a decade now. And that started with youth climate stuff, which was very internationally focused. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to be part of a, a movement of young people from all around the world who were trying to influence the UN climate talks. And then five years working in the youth environmental, youth nature sector in the UK, but I've gradually, you know, managed to build up links with other young people around the world working on uh, working on these same issues, not least of not least of which you. Um, and one of the most kind of motivating things throughout that whole time is the power of friendships and mm. just of working with people who make you laugh, who you can talk about, you know, talk about anything with, whether it's about the issues you're working on or whether it's about other stuff and just become friends with. And that social network is really, really important for making change because it creates strong bonds that help you to achieve more and help you to cope when things are tricky and I think that the story that you've just told sums up, you know, sums up in a narrative what it is that Coalition Wild can and does do and why it's such an amazing and important network. Absolutely. And, and I couldn't have said it better. I think we're more connected than ever before. And we know that because when, whenever you read or hear anything about the millennial generation, it's about how everyone's always connected and caring about their social media handles and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's always looked at as a negative, but, but I think the fact that we're more connected than ever means that we have more access to, um, a global understanding. We have more information than ever at our fingertips. And, and I think that's made for also a more conscious generation, a generation that realizes that, that, that my actions where I live can and do affect actions in a place that I may never visit, but at least I know about it because I have it at my fingertips. Um, I mean, you could see that difference when, when natural disasters happen and, and people from around the, the world donate their time, their money, their energy to supporting that. And, and we could, I'm sure between the two of us, name off 15 or 20 off the top of our head where, where that's been the case. Um, and it comes down to exactly what you said, that that friendship, that connection, that um, that bond that we create with people that transcends um, oceans and, and borders and languages and cultures and, and all of that. Um, I think more than ever, that's going to be the foundation of what um, our future looks like. And I think that one of, you know, increasingly environmental challenges that are location specific in many cases all that are global like climate change but play out in different ways in different parts of the world are a concern and anxiety uh, and in some cases a very very material threat that lots of young people around the world feel like they also share in common as well and you know there's huge uh huge inequities in terms of the impacts these these uh you know, these problems have in, say, develops compared to developing countries, but nonetheless, it's something that's shared in common, and I suppose that the young people who are part of the Coalition World Network are uniting to combat and to try and overcome. Definitely, and I also think that with that, um, we're, we're able to learn about the ways that they're overcoming it, because 
no solution is going to be cookie cutter. You know, what's going to work in the UK where you are is not going to work with where I'm, I am. Um, and even more disparagingly is, is what works for where I am is not going to work in a majority of the areas around the world. And so um, by being able to communicate the different tactics that people are taking, the different projects people are starting, um, the different uh, issues that, that are being focused on, et cetera, around the world. I think we're doing a few things. I think we're, we're inspiring people to getting involved locally where they are. I think we're giving examples or ideas of ways that people can get involved. Maybe it's not perfect, like, you're doing this, I'm going to replicate it, but more, ooh, I could do something like that where I live, and I never would have considered that. Um, but I think it's also creating this strong voice that says um, we're tired of waiting for governments or higher-ups to make decisions that affect me. I'm going to take initiative now because I care about this. And it's okay to stand up for what you believe in and to use your voice. And you're not alone in that, in that desire. So I wanted to, um, I've got quite a few questions left. Um, I'm not sure whether or not I'm going to fit them all in, but I'll try and get, I'll try and get through some of them. Um, so, You're so good at this. <laughs> <laughs> like this, I, when I'm, this is like just you and I, when we chat, we just chat. Yeah, it's good. Well, it's good that we've had a few conversations before. I think that, uh, <laughs> that helps. Um, one of the, one of the things that you've written, and I'm probably just quoting the headline of the blog or the article. So this is, um, this is a little bit lazy. I did reread it, but I can't remember the content of the body of it, but it's about how environmentalists won't save the world. Could you say a little bit more about kind of the idea that sits at the heart of what you wrote there? Yeah. So <clears throat> we, I, it, it basically what the article was about, and then of course this all comes from, again, as I mentioned earlier, personal opinion. Um, I think environmentalists and conservationists are incredibly important. I think scientists and biologists give us the foundation information we need to um, figure out the next steps. But I don't think that it's going to be the nonprofits and the, the um, environmentalists and the scientists and biologists that are going to save the world and, and quite uh, potentially... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, aggravating is that I don't think we need more of them. I don't think we need more environmentalists. I think we need more everyday people in their everyday quote unquote careers or jobs um, doing things every day that's going to change the world. We need more parents communicating to their children and making decisions um, that help educate. I think we need teachers um, and university professors bringing information to the classroom. I think we need um, bankers and, and uh, ranchers and, um, I don't know, every other profession to care about the things that are happening every single day and to take a stand that their everyday actions um, matter. And to act on those passions and those interests. And that's what, and, and for big businesses to change their practices to ones that 
that support a more um, longer term vision. Because I don't know if you've ever attended some of these environmental conferences, but a lot of times it's a lot of preaching to the choir and, and, and being around people who think, at least in concept, similarly to you. And what I think would be the most powerful is that um, we think of environmentalists as a group, right, as a sector, the environmental sector. But what it comes down to is that every day people are living and, in, and are working um, in fields that, that have influence and, and that, they lead, that they have the power to make decisions. And so I think what's going to change the world is that when those influencers and those decision makers make those decisions towards a better planet, towards a more sustainable future, towards um, combating climate change or, or um, having more thoughtful business practices, um, I think that's what's going to make the, the largest impact in our society globally. So say there's a young person listening to this somewhere in the world and they want to make that that world a reality through doing something in their local community. And say they, let's say maybe they, they'd like Coalition Wild support or they'd like to look for some support maybe from from their own community, from somewhere. What, what are the questions they should ask themselves before setting out on doing something? What do you care about? I think that's the easiest question to ask, and it's also the hardest to answer. Um, but what is it that you care about? And it could be anything. I think um, I think that's the beauty of it, right? That like everyone cares about different things for different reasons and to different degrees. Um, how boring would it be if we all cared about rainbows? You know, like <laughs> that would know, that would be pretty exciting. I think <laughs> it'd be exciting, but it would also make for really boring conversations. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so asking yourself that question, what is it that you care about? Is it wildlife? What, what part of it? Is it the human-wildlife conflict? Is it saving an endangered species? Is it protecting their habitat? Like, really start nailing, asking, your question, asking yourself the question over and over and over again. What is it that I care about? Then go deeper. Why do I care about that? Go deeper. What about that is specific, you know, or unique? And, and going from there, Okay. So I care about saving uh, in, uh, a species habitat. Okay, is there an organization that works on that? Is there a campaign you could get involved in? Do you have all the information? Start learning. Ask questions. Ask a lot, a lot, a lot of questions. But mostly ask questions of yourself. Because I think, um, I think when we start diving into things that we want to get involved in or volunteer our time or want to make a career or a job or get paid, you know, to, to, to do, um, this type of work, whatever type of work it ends up being. Um, you want to make sure that you've already asked yourself all those questions before diving in. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, I think it also comes back to something that you said earlier, which is also asking yourself what, what are you good at? And it doesn't necessarily always matter if you're not good at something, you know, you can learn that from other people or you can teach yourself that um, sometimes there's a lot of overlap between what you're good at and what you care about as well. And definitely. Yeah. And it, and it could be as simple, like, Oh man, I remember when I first moved to Jackson, um, I got in an argument with somebody who told me that I wasn't passionate about anything. And, and the sentence to me, I'll never forget was, 
don't you care about anything? What is it that you care about? And I remember feeling really, um, really down because I couldn't answer. One, because I've never considered it, but two, because I didn't know. And, and that's okay. Like looking back, I realized I didn't know because I hadn't experienced enough to know what I could care about. As silly as that might sound. Mm, yeah. but like <clears throat> if you don't know what's out there, how do you know if you haven't experienced it, if you haven't been introduced to it, how could you possibly make that decision or, or make that um, discovery? And, and so I, I would also um, caution of not getting too frustrated or being too hard on yourself if you can't nail that answer down. Because um, that's okay. But if, if that's the case, challenge yourself to go out there and try a lot of things and use process of elimination, you know, go, go to a, go to a rally one day and be like, Ooh, this isn't it. <laughs> right. Or volunteer, um, for an organization for a weekend. And maybe you're like, okay, I see that I like people. Now let's keep following, teasing that out and following that path. But, but I think it's that, that constant, uh, trail of self-discovery that's important and not getting frustrated with yourself to not having the direct specific answer immediately, but being patient enough to say, okay, well, let me, let, let's have some fun. Let's go on an adventure and figure it out. Yeah. I think it's ridiculous to expect that by the age of 18 or 23 or whatever, that we know everything that we're <laughs> good at or passionate about or yeah, for the rest of our lives. Right. And, oh. and that that's fixed. No, I, but I think that we sometimes get frustrated. Like, I know I do where I, I mean, that's how I basically chose my college major was, um, and, and in, the, in the moment, it seemed ridiculous. Looking back, I realized what I was doing by default, but I would like choose a major and then I would go, my dad, like my dad was very, very strong and, and I always needed to have a job. Like I couldn't ever just freeload. Right. And so I would, I would pick a major. And then if I had my, my winter vacation or summer vacation, I would have to get a job. And so I would get it in that field. Right. So I picked journalism and I got an internship at a, a news station and I was like, Ooh, I don't like this. And so, and I was like, maybe I like broadcasting and <laughs> I did some broadcasting. I was like, Oh, I don't like this. And then I went into, I was like, maybe I like promotion. I got a job in that. And I was like, I don't like this either. So literally I kept like picking majors, doing something in it and then saying, I don't want to do this. <laughs> <clears throat> so that's one way to do it. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to do it. Um, oh man, where do I go next? So, so taking it, a moment ago at least we were on the kind of the community scale side of things taking it to kind of the other end you've and you've mentioned this already you negotiated the the protege scheme the mentoring scheme that coalition world now runs with the u.s department of interior so you've you know you've got backing from government departments from big ngos um you've presented at big u.n conferences i suppose what are some of the tactics that you use for preparing for you know, conversations with big players or for presentations in kind of potential, potentially daunting settings? Yeah. Um, practice a lot. <laughs> um, I, and I'll break that up into two different um, questions. 
One is, is the question of having the conversation with potentially intimidating people, people who hold um, high power, high esteem, um, and especially when you're young, um, and especially when you're a woman in the field and, and feeling comfortable and confident in yourself. And, and so those one-on-one or small group settings, um, what I've learned is that the people that you're talking to are just that, they're people. They're people just like you, with histories just like you, um, who were at one time in their life where you are. And, um, and oftentimes their titles are, are important and they've worked hard to get where they are, but they're all still human. They all still have fears. They all still have things that they love and are passionate about and they enjoy. Um, and so for me, I find that my greatest conversations and greatest successes have come out of when you're able to find almost a, a common ground or, or you take the hierarchy out of it and you're able to connect on a one-on-one basis of, of human to human, passion to passion, interest to interest, you know? Um, and, and it also takes a little bit of that intimidation, at least for me out of it, because I, I remember that, oh yeah, you are, um, you are, you are an incredibly important person and I respect you, but you are also a human um, and you respect me. And so, so that, that's something I try to remember. Um, as for presentations and, and um, giving talks, um, the big thing I have to learn and continue to relearn is, is the art of practice and the art of practicing in front of people. Um, as I've said, I think a couple of times, uh, when we it's it's not healthy to spend all of your time in your own head. <laughs> and yeah. so, so whether that's uh, finding a couple of friends um, that you trust, or or people that um, you can stand up in front of, or read something out to, or send a note, or a, a um, document, or a, a, you know blog to that reads it. And who will give you honest feedback is is imperative to actually being good, and it's it's always a learning process, and it's never comfortable, and I I hate it all the time <laughs> because you're it's really vulnerable, and it almost is for me more vulnerable doing that one on one versus doing it in front of a full crowd, um, but but you have to remember that with vulnerability comes growth and, and you can't grow if you don't allow some cracks in your armor sometimes. And, um, and so just feeling comfortable with the uncomfortableness, I guess. Mm, I would concur with that. I think practice is really important and it's not just for those big settings where you're on a stage and there's an audience, but I've also, I mean, I, in some ways, I find those easier than sitting in a room full of 10 or 12 people who I'm yeah. a bit intimidated by. I'd rather do the presentation in front of 300 people than <laughs> sit in a room with 10 people who I'm quite intimidated by. And I'll probably practice more for the room full of 10 people than I will for the, you know, the lecture hall full of 300. I mean, I'll still practice for that, but... Um, but, you know, I, I can take that one a bit more in my stride for some reason. I'm not quite sure I, why it is, but yeah. I don't know why it is either. And maybe it's because of the fact that there are so many eyes that 
that they're not necessarily connected to one specific person, right? Where in a room full of 10 or 20, there's a human connected to that stare, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. But I guess you just also brought up another thing that I thought of that um, when I, when I see presentations um, or meet people who impress me or have incredible skills, um, whether they're a good speaker or gave a um, very moving presentation or um, words that I like that really hit home or, or evoked an emotion in me, I write those down. Um, and, and I find that I have this long list of qualities and skills and traits um, that I, I look over from time to time and try to emulate or try to grow into um, and, and work that into whatever it is that I'm doing as well. That's useful. Is there, um, talking about people that inspire you, are there any, um, are there any particular authors or books that have inspired you over time? And are there any books that you very often lend or recommend to people in particular? Ooh, I just, as you said that, I just turned around in my chair to look at my bookcase, of which <laughs> I have, I have many. Um, <clears throat> I am a fan of, I've, I'm a fan of a lot. Um, one of my favorite books, it's a little cliche at this point, um, but definitely is Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. Um, I think at the time it was, it was a really, uh, progressive book for, for women, mm -hmm. especially. And I know now, uh, with, with so much focus on, on the women's movement, um, it's been kind of part of the repertoire for a lot of people, but I know, I remember when I first got it and read it, it was definitely something that shaped my thinking. Um, there's also another book called Going Alone, um, and it's a compilation of short stories from women authors who um, talk about going on adventures alone in the wilderness <laughs> and, and their experience and why they do it or what they learn from it, et cetera. Um, and I've always, I don't know, that one is one that I always go back to and read because it, it, it kind of gives you that sense of empowerment of you, you can do this, right? That, that you're capable. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a lot of other um, little ones like The Art of Possibility or um, From Good to Great or... Um, I don't know. I could go on and on. I'm a big, I'm a big book fan. <laughs> I really like things like, um, uh, what the dog saw by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, cause it speaks to that whole, uh, different perspective. Right. Piece of thing. Um, and those books always really make me think. Mm. I'm, um, I'm quite excited thinking like speaking of the going alone book, which I haven't read, but I'm quite excited in a, in a couple of weeks, I'm recording an episode of this podcast with the founder of Love Her Wild, which is all about um, kind of encouraging and supporting individual women or groups of women who kind of, you know, want to and do get out into into the outdoors doing all sorts of extreme adventuring, um, which is, yeah, I'm really excited for that conversation. Um, I've never heard of them, and I just I just wrote that down so I could look into it. it yeah, with worth checking out um, yeah cool okay well I'm probably going to wrap up with the last one or two questions um, yeah haven't even touched on 
Peru at all, which is potentially a whole <laughs> like that's maybe a whole other episode's worth of stuff right there. Um, <laughs> but I'm gonna put a link to the article that you sent me that you wrote about your some of your experiences in Peru in the show notes, so as people can people can at least begin reading about that themselves. Um, sure. I suppose just the last couple of questions to wrap up. Number one, what are you hopeful or excited about that you're going to be working on in 2018? Um, I the I think the two projects I'm, I'm most excited about is um, this ambassador program that we're revamping and relaunching in April. Um, and the reason for that is I think I think it's really appealing to um, really appealing to a need that hasn't been yet has yet to be met. Let me rephrase that. I think it's really appealing to a need that has yet to been met for for young people. Um, this idea that we we want young people to step up and step into leadership opportunities and to to be a part of decisions and to to share their voice and to start projects and to, to feel empowered. You know, like we, we, we really want to galvanize these, this, this young cohort. Um, but, it, but recognizing that if we don't give them the skills and, and the resources and the tools and the abilities to do that, um, that they're still just in this place where they started. And so developing that curriculum that helps uh, walk people through those first steps of getting involved and creating, whether it's projects or using their voice towards something they care about. Um, I think that that's going to be really exciting. Also, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of it, right? Like having the success stories and, and not as, as uh, quantitative uh, numbers to point to, but truly because it, it, it's always interesting to me um, how creative and innovative people are when you give them the opportunity to be so mm. and um that kind of leads me on to the second question which is uh what can well i guess not just young people but what can people listening to this episode do to help or get involved and like please do be specific like if you want to give you know a url give a web link then then like please do do that sure um <clears throat> so specifically speaking, um, very generally, if, if people are interested in what Coalition Wild is doing and want to stay updated um, and support the work, whether just by becoming more knowledgeable or, or being a part of the network, um, they could very simply sign up by putting their name and email address uh, into our website, which is coalitionwild.org. Um, and they'll get updates from us. They'll get uh, emails of opportunities, et cetera. Um, and that's the very basic. And, and that's how they, quote unquote, become a member, more or less. Um, but if people are interested in becoming more engaged, there's a few ways to do that. Um, if they are under 35, um, they can apply for our ambassador program, um, which is coalitionwild.org backslash ambassador. Um, or you could find it on our website, of course. Um, they can, if they are leading or have their own or are involved in a project they'd like to share um, as well, and they have to be under 35 years old, um, they could submit it on our website to be featured. 
Um, and so they would be, uh, become a featured project leader. Um, and of course, we are a 501c3 nonprofit and, and so are run by and are supported by donations. And, and that's not only funds and money, uh, but also volunteer time and, and skills. And so if people would like to donate to Coalition Wild, they could do so through our website, um, as well as if, if anyone listening is, is interested in getting involved in other ways. Maybe they have uh, website skills. We're about to um, re-update our website. And so we could um, use skills like that. If anyone is interested in, in creating uh, or writing for us blogs or being a photographer, things like that, um, we can always use support in those ways. Um, and if anyone, in general, um, oh, we also have, um, part of being a part of the network is when our young leaders, whether ambassadors or project leaders, uh, need help. Sometimes they need access to technology like cell phones. Sometimes they need uh, a connection in an area of the world that they're working in. Um, if people are interested in becoming part of a network of, of um, I guess, uh, supporters in that way of just being able to be tapped into, um, they can email me at Krista, C-R-I-S-T-A, at coalitionwild.org. Essentially, there's, there's lots of ways to get involved, and we never turn anybody away. Um, <laughs> But I, because I, I truly believe that that um, supporting somebody or an organization or initiative is is so much deeper than just monetary, which we need, of course, right? Like that's that's how we run day to day. Um, but also, there's a lot to be said for for skills and for intangible uh, qualities that everybody has. Great, thank you, and I'll put all that in the notes as well, um, and all the links. Um... One final question that I always uh, I always try and ask is, is there anything that you wanted to talk about or touch on or say that, that we haven't covered or I've neglected to ask about? Um, I don't think so. We, we covered a lot, and I know I, I, I probably covered more on certain topics than we either of us were anticipating. <laughs> no, that's great. That's, that's always the way it goes, and that's what makes these, these conversations so fantastic. Um, cool. Okay. Well, then, then we can wrap it up. Thank you so much. That was very good. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much and until next time.